Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. If we can just learn to talk, be transparent in in the things that we're thinking, a lot of the things that we build up and build up and build up can be squashed immediately in a conversation. They really can. Yep. And and it, and and that's that's what you know the guys that we talk with today, and you know hopefully the guys that that, that will see this. If if there's one thing I can say, man, like go talk to somebody it might not be your spouse you might not have that trust in your spouse i don't i don't know it it might be your dad it might be your brother it might be the guy down the corner i have no idea who that person is but get that shit out of you because that stuff needs to get out and once it's out you'll understand the weight that comes off your shoulders this podcast is brought to you by livemomentous.com leading the way in human performance is live momentous for listening today, you get a discount at checkout. Enter the code DRB20. That's DRB, the number 20, for 20% off your order. Live momentous. Optimize, perform, recover. Bankruptcy, foreclosure, prison, anxiety, and a suicide attempt. Those are the words that our guest has experienced firsthand. It was through the darkness that our guest created a community of men titled Building a Refuge. Uh, I've known this individual for several years. Fantastic story, fantastic man. And and their mission, Building a Refuge, is to bring hope and encouragement to men who are struggling. He's the co-host of the Bar podcast, Building a Refuge podcast. Building a Refuge, one story at a time is our mission statement. Our guest is husband and father of two. It's Eric Robinson, my man. Eric, thank you, buddy, for uh, finally we got to do this, man. Yeah, Dr. Rob, it's been a while, man. I appreciate it. Um, we've been talking about this for a bit, and we finally get together, so I thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. Well, I've heard your story, so I want to illuminate that to all the listeners. <laughs> I mean, let's start with this, man. I think you and I, we we both have this in common. Like, after our first semester in college, like, we were both on academic probation. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. I, I uh, I tried to put that behind me, but for some reason, people keep talking about it, and I, I it's part of my story. It's part of your story. It's it's uh, what got us here, and and uh, yeah, we learned our lessons. I think pretty young. So my issue was is I had no idea. Like I'd never studied at all in high school. I got straight B's, right? right when I got right. to college, like I had no idea how to study, how like what these tests were going to be like. And I mean, and then I had a couple of significant events that happened. I mean, I was just totally messed up. I, I survived, yeah, with a two point <laughs> Right. Yeah. And mine in high school, all I ever wanted to do, I got good enough grades to keep me on the field or keep me on the court. And that that's it. And as long as I did that, I was good. And then I got to college and it was like, what in the world have I stepped into? Because I, like you said, I had no idea how to study. Um, there was other distractions. Obviously, there, <laughs> there was a, a lot of distractions when I got to, to Ball State. When I went to Ball State, um, they used to have this this list of party schools in the country, and Ball State was always in that top ten. And man, we had a good time, and that was that was a big distraction. Were they really? Ball State was in top ten. Oh yeah, man. 
Uh, it was the the Playboy's list of top ten oh <laughs> party schools in the country. Oh yeah, the Ball State <laughs> in it every year, man. And it was it was crazy, but it was wow. a lot of fun. Yeah. So my that's, first that's, semester that's was in, not good. I mean, that's impressive, man. Because Ball State, I mean, that's the last place that I would want to go, like to party. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You 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 wouldn't think about it. You you definitely uh-huh. wouldn't think. But but we we did it right for sure. Wow. wow. Well, <laughs> impressive, man. Impressive. Good good place to yeah. start off. Yeah, we so, represented the Mac well. Um, your first, and that, this is what I kind of, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll go back and forth in terms of your story, but let's start out with this. Yeah. I mean, you're, when you got into real estate in late, um, early 2000s, late 19, I was going to say late 1900s. <laughs> so <laughs> late 19, old, late, <laughs> so in late 1900s, early 2000s, when you got yeah. into real estate, I mean, your first kind of real estate that was introduced by the very first boss that you ever had though, right? Yeah. I, I uh, came out of school and worked for a company that had every, everybody they recruited was straight out of college. So it was a bunch of young people, a bunch of people that were hungry to make it hungry to, to do what they needed to do to make it. And uh, my boss was a great boss. He was fantastic. And he was always looking. um, He was very energetic, very, he's a very energetic guy. And um, he was always looking for other avenues of income, other things to do. And and one of those was real estate. And he, he had kept after me, you know, to try to, to try to do something. And I just really never really had an interest in it. And then I, I tried one um, and I caught the bug really quick with real estate. Um, and that was about 2004, 2005 timeframe. Um, I mean, what, what was your first involvement in it? Um, so he had, he had a deal that he was doing and he's like, Hey, just, just come and just, just watch, you know, what I was doing, you know, and, and learn about what I'm doing. Um, and then just a taste, right? Well, well, what did it, what did like you can't do that stuff unless you like dive in because right, right. there's a lot of upfront work that comes with real estate. Um, a lot of research, a lot of, a lot of due diligence on the front end. And so it was one of those things where like, as soon as I saw what he was doing, how he was doing it, because all the while I had a full-time, you know, 40 hour a week job that I was doing. Um, and I was, you know, newly married and, and I, I, uh, by that time had uh, had we had started discussing having kids and everything. So it was something to where I had to commit fully and and I did and I made that decision. And and uh, to be honest with you, Rob, like it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Some people might not look at that way based on my story. No, but there's a lot of growing, a lot of learning, a lot of really cool people that I met during that time. And so in the beginning, Man, it it was it was like 2004, 2005, like I said, and if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. I mean, it was there. There was it was a wild, yeah, wild. No, no doc loan. loans. Yeah. Oh, everything. No interest. No doc. No nothing. They called them liar loans, and and uh, they were legit because they they were doing them and they were allowing people to do them. And so we just we I I, I went into it full bore, and originally the intent of my real estate investing was to continue my corporate career and get three, four or five houses, um, utilize it for my kids' education and for oh, possibly, fun, sure. yeah, just retirement down the road. It wasn't, I had no intention of starting a business and growing it the way that it grew. 
Um, so in, like I said, in the beginning, and, and I also like my dad was my business partner. And one of the things that we saw in Indianapolis at the time, there was vacant houses everywhere and there was housing issues and, and there was a lot of things going on in India at the time. And originally when we, my dad and I did it, we were doing it under the, um, a ministry heading, uh, where we were going to help people, um, get into homes and and supply them with you know low income housing because that was our focus was 60 to 150 thousand dollar homes and so we just kind of went into it with with that idea in mind and then all of a sudden like there were so many deals out there from 2005 to 2008 we had 80 we did 84 homes Mm. and so in 2007 um my wife and I made a decision at the time she was teaching and she had, you know, obviously a full-time job, good benefits and all that stuff. So we were very fortunate and very blessed to be able to say, Hey, let's take a shot, you know? And so I quit my corporate job and went into real estate investing full-time. And at the time when I was doing real estate investing, when I decided to make that, that leap, I'd only had, I had about 20 houses. And I was at my full capacity with working a 40 hour week job and doing that. And I was like, I got to make a decision one way or the other. And so we went for it. Um, and we went full bore and it was, <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a good decision. It was crazy for about three years. Um, I love it, man. Cause it was quite the time there in 2007, 2008 with real estate. Yeah. I, yeah. It, well, it hadn't gotten bad yet. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, it, towards the end of 2008, beginning of 2009 is when things got really bad. And like I said, at the time when things got really bad, we had about 84 homes and those were mostly okay. in central Indiana. We had so, um, some land, real, real, some land. Down quick, yeah. yeah, sure. And, and, you know, I hate to interrupt. I hate to be one of those people, but like your, uh, your ego, like at that time at like the peak of how things were, cause I know like you had, you know, I mean, you you bought nice things. I mean, lavish Christmases, all that stuff. What was your ego and your mentality kind of at that point? So you're, I, there I, is a God and, and you're it. <laughs> I don't know if it was that bad, but it was, it was pretty bad. So high school, college, all that stuff. I never really experienced any type of failure. Um, and so I, I was never really one to lack confidence in myself. Um, to put it nicely, um, I wasn't, I wasn't a, you know, an asshole or anything, but I was like, I was very confident. Uh, mm-hmm. and most of that was in internal. Um, and so when I look back on it and, and I look back at the, the, the direction that my life went with the material, the materialistic side of me, like I wasn't, I grew up on the West side of Indianapolis, you know, out in the sticks and, and I was a country kid and, now I've gotten to the point now where I'm driving around in BMWs and I've got five bedroom homes and all this stuff. And it, it just didn't fit me. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Um, and, and people could tell that the people that knew me when I, you know, when I was younger, like it just didn't fit well. I remember one example, we were, we bought a lot of homes in the donut County around counties around Indianapolis. Um, there, and there's a couple counties that are a couple uh, towns that, we bought in that aren't, weren't so nice. You know, they were, they were struggling a little bit and I come rolling up in a 
BMW up to these houses that are sixty, seventy thousand dollars. And I remember vividly uh, my buddy who worked for me. He looked over at me and kind of gave me this look. I was real proud of what I was driving. I was real happy with what I was doing, and that was great in the town in the town that I lived in. But where I was going, it just didn't fit in. And the guys that I was hanging with, it just didn't fit in. And that that was kind of my first eye opening experience to where like what are you doing like mm-hmm. like what like who do you think you are um and and that that was a really humbling thing sure. um but but when you have already bought the houses you've already bought the cars um your kids have experienced christmases and and birthdays to where you know i never experienced as a kid you know and so how do you how do you step back from that knowing that you your ego has has gone to the point where you're the provider right. um you you're making this much money you know you you can't step from step back from that knowing all that um and and you know it's funny i have conversations with my wife now and she tells me she's like that eric that wasn't that wasn't you you know that mm-hmm. that 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 persona that you you portrayed was not you so it was yeah. it's an interesting time uh, of of growth of you know eye-opening things for me, for sure. So the real estate market then takes a turn because the entire economy. Um, start walking us through then that experience and how quickly that, that, you know, what you had built, I mean, how that had just started to erode. Yeah, so to that late 2008, 2009, for those who are, you know, our age, lived through that. Um, and there's a lot of people who lost their homes, who lost their jobs, and uh, dealt with some really bad stuff. Um, and, and a lot of it was n- no one's fault. Um, it was just the way things happened. Um, but imagine not only having to deal with your own home and your own, you know, checking account and your own, you know, things in your own personal life, but also 85 homes and a business that surrounded, you know, 20 people working for you, all that going away in the course of probably eight months. Uh, the, the market, it was kind of a perfect storm for real estate investors. And I wasn't the only one that went through that. You know, I knew guys here in Indianapolis and in other towns that went through what I went, but not necessarily to the magnitude of what I went through. It was a perfect storm because, you know, the, the people that we were putting in our homes were most likely they were two income family. And so if one, one person lost their job, like they were in trouble. Um, and, part of my downfall was that as I operated my business with my heart instead of with my mind. And so a lot of times I would let those people skate for a month here or two months there. It's not so bad when you have four or five homes, when you have 15 or 20 of them where people aren't paying their rent that, you know, things happen really fast. And I lasted a lot longer than a lot of real estate investors did because we we took our money and we put it away in a money market account, you know, the, the down payments and all that stuff. And we managed that in the beginning very well. But when you have a home that somebody has lived in for two or three years and they have to move out, there's a lot of damage that can be done to a rental in two or three years. So you sure. go into that home, you go into that home and you have a situation where you've got, you know, let's say, $3,000 of rehab to do carpet and paint. Well, one home is okay. 10 homes at a time is not okay. You know, so if you're having to fork over $30,000 and the other problem was 
is that you couldn't refinance. We always maintain a lot of equity in our homes, but you couldn't refinance because they didn't do appraisal. They wouldn't give you an appraised value on those homes. And then when you're trying to release it, if you did go in and fix it up and you tried to release it, you couldn't find people to, to, to do it because they didn't have a job. Right. So it was just, just, just this perfect storm. And like I said, I made it a little bit longer than most investors did, but by the end of 2009, I was staring at a, a bunch of zeros in my checking account. Um, I had a bunch of empty properties and I just kind of, I, I curled up in a ball. Like I said, you know, in, in high school and college, I never had really experienced any failure. Um, and this is my first, you know, failure. <laughs> Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website, drrobbell.com, and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. And I remember you mentioned one time, I mean, in you know, I mean, obviously there are a lot of points along the way, but one time you mentioned, you know, your wife, Jennifer went and because you had to hide this from her as well. I mean, this wasn't oh, yeah. something you could just let her know. So, I mean, you, but she went and was one of those classic examples, right. To pay for groceries and the, it, it bounced, right. Like there wasn't anything in there. Yeah. What, I, what I, were a couple of other, what were a couple of those incidences, man, that stand out yes. to you during that? So, so you, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the ego and the pride factor and, and, uh, you know, my ego and pride could fill this room at that time. And one of the things that I had 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 uh, this falsity that I had had grown in my own mind was that I was the provider and that that uh, I was protecting my wife and, and my kids by not telling them the full truth of what really was going on. I'd feed them little bits and pieces at a time. You know, my wife and I, when we were out to dinner or something like that, I'd be like, like, yeah, we're having trouble with a couple of homes or we're, you know, we'll get that back or we'll do with this or that. Well, I, that was easy to do that, you know, in the beginning. Uh, but there was two incidents, one, one that you mentioned um, when she was at the grocery store and she went and it was, you know, it was a big grocery, it was a Sunday afternoon grocery trip. So it was a couple hundred bucks and, and she got in line and, you know, Sunday afternoon is a busy time at the grocery store. And, she comes up and tries to pay and she, she gets denied. And so she had to take all those groceries and put them off to the side. And she called me. She's like, Eric, is there something wrong with She's like, And I, I played that one off too. I was like, Oh, sorry, honey. You know, I've got a check coming and it'll be in there Monday or Tuesday. And, and we hung up the phone and I just remember this panic coming over me um, of, of this is the snowball that they talk about. You know, this is, this is the one where the little lie becomes a big lie. And I, and I just, I felt it in my, in every core of my being. And probably a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call and, and she, she goes to work and she goes out in the parking lot and they're towing her, our van away. Um, and they're repoing our, our van and you can't hide that. You know, you can't, you can't explain your mm -hmm. way out of that. You know, why, why haven't you made the payments for the last three months? You know, what's going on? She literally had nothing to do with our bills, nothing to do with anything. I handle all that stuff. And so, you know, those are just a couple instances where I had to start coming. I had to start being honest with myself 
and with her um, because I had really kind of compartmentalized this whole thing. And I, I had always worked my way out of things. And so, right. but this specific situation, there was no working out of this one. There was, there was no way I was going to recover from this because, you know, $30,000 turned into $100,000 turned into $150,000 real quick. And I just, I didn't have it. And, yeah. and so knowing, knowing that there wasn't anything come else coming in, I had to be honest with her. And then you had surgery. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of the beginning of the, of the downfall. Um, let's see, it was 2009, uh, Thanksgiving of 2009. And I had had some problems with my jaw for a long time. Uh, it was, uh, uh, degeneration in my lower jawbone, and anyway, I won't I won't get technical on you, but I had to have a surgery that was pretty extensive. I had 16 screws in my top jaw and four in my bottom jaw, and so, and this was right in the middle of everything coming down on me. Like it was, you know, I had investors that had invested with me that were calling me every day. I had, I had people that, um, uh, you know, that were were in working for me who were wanting work and you know i was promising them work all this time saying hey it'll come it'll come it'll come and it never came we're right around thanksgiving which next in line is christmas so all these people were counting on me to support their families and to give them christmases so there's a lot of pressure a lot of stress and one of the things that this surgery allowed me to do was to kind of hibernate and 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 skip and get out of the, you know, I, I could use the excuse that I was recovering from the surgery. Uh, and I did that in my basement. Um, we, we had a, a home with a, a basement. In it. And so I, I was recovering for, you know, a week, week and a half in my basement. And that's when things got real, real dark. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, uh, that was the beginning of, of a, a pretty dark time for me. And that's when we spoke Early on, I think we met each other, and then you talked about that basement. So, I mean, one, two, three days being down there, I mean, you know, you you tell your wife, don't have your kids come see me. And I mean, you can kind of picture this in your mind because we get there, right? When we get stuck inside our own head like that, where, I mean, we were behind enemy lines and you got attacked big time. You're yeah. in the dark. Um, walk us through then how bad that situation got and then the culmination of, of that when uh, – you know, when, when you had that voice in your head. Yeah. So, so like I said, I recovered for about, about a week, um, in the basement and it's, it was a very, well, it, I made it very dark in there and, I, and all I did was sat there and watch TV and I just escaped. Um, and I told my wife, you know, that first day I'm all bandaged up and I could use the excuse, Hey, I don't, don't bring the kids down here because I don't want them to see me like this and all that stuff. And, and then I, I had, I had to take the bandage off, um, after the first day. And, and, uh, I just remember sitting on the couch and thinking to myself, how in the world did we get here? Like how, how, how did all this come to this? And that was that first day, Rob was the first time that the idea of suicide had ever creeped into my mind. Um, and I, and I started thinking thoughts of, you know, maybe I can escape all this stuff by just being gone, you know? And then, 
you know, my wife came down and I was chicken. I, my diet at the time were, were, uh, you know, those insured drinks, those, those chocolate, you know, I've broken my jaw as well. And I remember drinking those. That and tomato soup, man. And it was, it was terrible. And so my wife would bring me down the stuff, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, and I told her on the second day when she came down to, to give me this Enfamil lunch or this, uh, insure lunch, I said, Hey honey, you know, don't, I don't want the kids to see me like this. And I, and I'd really prefer it if you just, just set that stuff at the top of the stairs and I'll come get it myself. I'd rather not see you either. And I don't know what's going on in her mind at that time, but in my mind, I was like, I was like, I, I just, I, I, I can't see anything. I can't see anybody. Uh, I just want to escape for right now. And that's when these, uh, the idea of uh, kept creeping in my mind that maybe it would be better if I just wasn't here. Uh, Maybe it'd be, it would be um, better for my family. It'd be better. You know, my, my mom and dad are walking through all this stuff with me. You know Uh, we were facing bankruptcy. we were facing foreclosure. Uh, Like I said earlier, we had, we had, our van had been repossessed. And at, at the time when my ma in my mind, my possessions were my worth and right. my possessions were being taken away from me. And for whatever reason, uh, and I, well, you and I know the reason that these thoughts are being dropped in our heads is, is that I, if I wasn't the provider, then who was I, you know, if I, if I wasn't the guy bringing in the money, then what kind of father am I, what kind of husband am I? Um, and, and that, that whole side of the, the money side of the greed side of it just overtook me. Um, and I, the third day, uh, my wife yelled down to me, she was, she was teaching at the time. And, and she, she said, Hey, I'm going to take the kids, you know, to school and, and, uh, I'm going to go to school myself. And I, I remember thinking that day, uh, on that third day, that's the last time I'm ever going to talk to her. Um, because this, today's the day I'm going to, I'm going to take my life. And mm-hmm. I knew, I knew exactly how I was going to do it. I knew what I was going to do. And that, that crushed me like, you no, know, sitting on the couch all by myself, uh, in the dark, uh, the TV, I remember it. I can, I can picture the scene right now. Um, the TV was on, but the sound was off and it was, there was just so many things running through my head and, um, it was all about the fact that I, I was, I was a failure, um, yeah. as a failure in every aspect of being a dad, being a, being a son, uh, being a husband, it, it was, it, there was no worth for me being there and they would all be better off without me there. And so you um, mean, cause you had, you had pictured in your mind, like, how are they going to find you? Correct. Yeah. And, and it, how did you want to, how did you like orchestrate that uh, in your mind? Yeah. So, so in, in our basement, uh, we had like a little theater room. Then you had to walk past the stairwell um, to get to the bathroom on the other side. And I was, you know, my, my wife called me out on this a couple years ago. She, she's like, you always say, I knew how I was going to do it, but you never tell anybody how you do it. You knew how you were going to do it. Didn't you? I said, yeah, I, I knew how I was going to do it. And I was, I was going to go in the shower and I was going to turn the water on and I was going to, going to cut my wrists. Um, and, and I thought that would limit, the amount of blood and the amount of things that, that she would have to see when she found me. Um, and that's so irrational. Yeah. It's just so so irrational and just so, so dark. Um, 
and and you know when I have people you know ask me about my mindset, it's so hard because you're kind of, you're out of your body. Like right. nothing, nothing you're thinking about is rational at the time. Um, there's no way to think of a good way for your spouse to find you dead. Right. I mean that's just irrational. And yeah. so I was trying to think of ways to mitigate it. And to make it look better. And in my mind at the time, my dark, dark mind, yep. it was, I'm going to run water over my body so that it goes down the drain so it's not yeah. as bad. And that's, that's, I've never really told that to anybody, Rob. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that, uh, I've got chills right now and I, yeah. I don't, I don't like talking about that, but um, well, I, I, I mean, it's important, you know. Absolutely, man. And I appreciate you sharing that, man, because, yeah, you know, we know, we're not a right mind when it comes to that. And and that makes sense. I mean, because, you know, thereafter moments after you're staying at the top of the stairs when you heard a different voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it's, it's, it's funny because I got up, I remember getting up off my couch and I had this big heavy blanket on me and the blanket dropped to the ground and I got up and I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to go do it. And I started walking to the bathroom. And when I got to the stairs, that's the last thing I remember until I was at the top of the stairs. When I got to the top of the stairs, I heard this voice and it said, get out of the house, get out of the house right now, get out of the house. And it just kept saying, get out of the house, get out of the house. And at the time I had this, you know, big obnoxious Jeep and I, I jumped into it and I was like, okay, I'm just going to get out of here. Like, I didn't really know what was going on. I was just kind of wide eyed and no clue. And I thought that was going to be it. And so I jumped in my car and my first thought when I was getting in my car was like, am I going to do this in my car? Like, I, like, is this where I'm going? And, 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 and like, not, that wasn't my plan at all. So I was really just kind of confused and it, it's hard to explain it. There's like a hundred thousand thoughts going through your mind and going through your brain of what's going to happen next. Because in my mind, when I got up off that couch, there was nothing, there was no next. Right. Uh, there was, there was no, there wasn't, I wasn't going to be there. So I'm like, okay. So I jumped in my car and I'm traveling down this road in front of my house and I go over this big bridge over this highway and I'm at the stoplight and I didn't know it, but I got, I got a phone call. Um, and it was a buddy of mine named Doug. Um, and Doug, I hadn't seen in probably two or Doug three years. <laughs> a good friend of both of us. And, uh, I hadn't seen him in like two or three years. Um, and he called me cause he was at the, the stoplight caddy corner to me and he saw me in my Jeep. He said, Eric, how's the, how are things going? And I, I was like, well, Doug, um, to be honest with you, they're going terrible. Um, he goes, okay, there's a Starbucks down the road. Let's go grab some coffee. Like, All right. So I, I went to Starbucks, grabbed coffee with Doug for about three hours. And that is the first time um, that I had let it all go and I'm sitting, I mean, if you can imagine how busy Starbucks are, you know, are, and I'm sitting there with my friend across from me and I'm just, I mean, I'm bawling my eyes out and, and I'm telling him what just happened and I'm telling him what my future looks like, you know, more my lack of future, <laughs> what that might look like. And he just listened to me literally for like three hours um, I'll bet you during that three hours, he probably said 10 words and he was a sounding board for me to be able to 
have that first experience with trusting someone um, that I could that I could tell them of my failures and have them not only understand but to listen and to encourage and that <laughs> that three hours saved my life and uh um you know we you and I both know Doug and you know how we you know how big his heart is and I remember after we had been there for about three hours and, and, and I had gotten it all out and, and, and I, I was starting to feel good. I, you know, I had the weight off my shoulders. He goes, Eric, he goes, I need you to get back in your car. I need you to go home and I need you to tell your wife exactly what you just told me. Mm -hmm. And then boom, right back on the weight, right back on my shoulders. Um, because I, I was, I had an escape. Like I, 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 I wasn't going to have to deal with that. You know, I, I, I was going to be able to get, a, get out of that. Um, again, irrational thought, right? Irrational ways of thinking, irrational um, ways of doing things. And so I'd love to be able to tell you, Rob, that I went home and I poured my guts out to my wife, but I chickened out. Um, I, I completely chickened out. I had a couple hours before she came home from work. And I was like, I, you can't do this. Like, there's no way you can, you can tell her it's going to crush her. She's going to leave you. She's going to take your kids. And I'm going to be that dude living by himself in an apartment all by himself, not going to ever see my kids again. And I was like, and I, it was all these rationalizations of why I cannot tell her exactly what was going on. Um, all the while, I had just experienced sitting in front of Doug of someone I know he loves me. I know I know Doug loves me. He's a good friend. Um, but the irration the how irrational my mind was that someone that loved me the most in the world, my wife, wasn't able gonna be able to hear what was going on. And and so I irrationalized and rationalized and rationalized. And this was like I think it was like a Wednesday. And we had an event coming up on Saturday for our church that carried it took us out of town so we had to drive and for two days man this like guilt just overcame me and and I was like I can't do this I can't do this and and I'm still I'm still in pain from my jaw and I'm still thinking about oh my god what what did I just try to do so it's like guilt and shame and fear and all this stuff, just nothing good, nothing good for three days, just building up inside of me. And I remember um, we were driving up to this event, which is which was about two hour hour north of, of where we live. And we got about three miles down the road, and I was like, "Honey, pull over." She was driving at the time, and we pulled over in a Wendy's, and for two hours in the parking lot of that Wendy's, I told her everything. I just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. You know, she's going to leave me or she's not going to leave me. And so I just told her everything. And that was another example. Um, while, while she was hurt and it was, it, it was devastating for her, she never looked at me with anger. She never looked at me with uh, shame. Um, she never, she never, it was always, how can I help? It was, it was always, okay, where are we going to go from here? It was always an encouragement, even though I know in her heart and in her gut, she was devastated because she knew what the future was. Like, 
we had plans. We had, we had things we were going to do. We were going to retire early. We were going to do all this stuff. And all that just flew out the car window in a two hour conversation. And so, but I will say this with the combination of what Doug did for me by listening to me and the combination of my wife, that uh, listening to me and not judging me and not, not shaming me, that gave me a little bit of trust and a little bit of hope. And all of a sudden, instead of thinking, I need to get out of this thing and I need, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm all these things, little bits of hope started to come into my mind. I'm like, you know what, if she'll trust me, maybe I can call my dad and tell him really what's going on. You know, if, if, if they'll trust me, maybe I can go to some of my investors and tell them what's going on, you know, and all this stuff. And so I had, and there were examples, Rob, there where people were upset and rightfully so, um, you know, because there were some things that happened during that time that I made decisions um, that cost me. Um, and one of the things that it cost me was the trust of some of the investors that I had. And on my end, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story because I have to jump back a little bit. When we first, the first five homes that we ever did, my dad and I, um, I say my dad and I, my dad was just an investor. He didn't do the day-to-day operations. It was all me. Um, uh, the first five homes that we did, we, we uh, rehabbed them and sold them to investors. And in order to qualify for a loan, a lot of them utilized their, the down payment, like their 401ks or their IRAs for the down payments. They borrowed against those. And the first couple were fine. Um, the, the third and fourth one were okay, but the fifth one took forever uh, to get done. And I was like, I'm not going to wait on that. Um, so I, I, what I did was I gave them a check from my company for the down payment funds, for the funds for the down payment. Well, on the bottom of a settlement statement on a real estate transaction that says there's a box that's always checked by the software, by real estate software, and it says that funds for the down payment have to come from the borrower. And so the first four deals that we did, I did that, and no title agency called me out, and I, I didn't know it was wrong. I had no clue. And the fifth deal came, and this title agent, agent came up to me and said, hey, you know you're, you're not allowed to bring those funds to the table, right? It has to come from the borrower. I was like, I hadn't, I, I said, that's not true. I've done it on these previous ones. Why? And they like, and they showed me right where that statement was. And I, I'd never really paid attention. I mean, how many things have we looked at on a mortgage document that we don't pay attention to? And I told him, I said, Hey, I've got to, I got to do this. I've got a closing at two o'clock this afternoon that I need this money for. So he went ahead and closed it. And that act right there, I committed a felony. Mm-hmm. And so while all this is going on, uh, while I'm discovering, you know, this new transparency thing and all this stuff, and and but all the while on the other side of it, my business is failing. People are losing their jobs. Um, I'm having to deal with investors, banks, all this stuff, and it's all just piling up. All of a sudden, I get a door on my a knock on my door, and two FBI agents are sitting in front of me, um, wanting to talk to me. Right. And I don't know for your listeners out there of anybody who's ever had a confrontation with an FBI officer or not, an FBI agent or not, but it is bone chilling. It it's is, not like it the, it's is, not like the movies. No, 
it, yeah. it, no, it, it, it sends a fear uh, down oh, you yeah. that, that you can, you never want to experience. And I, I remember I was, I was outside on my garage. I, I was doing something with, you know, like a weed whacker or something. And they come, they come walking up the driveway and, and uh, they're like, Hey, are you Eric Robinson? I'm like, yeah. And they say, well, we'd like to to talk with you. And immediately, it's funny, you mentioned the movie thing. Immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, call your attorney, call your attorney, say you got to call, you know? And so I was like, I'd be happy to talk to you. I said, I'm not really sure about what, but I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, but I'd like to have my attorney present. Right. And they're like, they're like, fine, cool. And we, we set that up. So, I mean, that, so that sits dormant for a while because they've got a lot of work that they're doing. Fast yeah. forward when all the all the federalities then come up and then everything goes down. Yeah, so it's it's probably I don't remember exactly a couple months. Um, my attorney and and the, the FBI are talking back and forth and all this stuff, and um, we we had an opportunity because at at that time uh, business was bad. I mean, everything was bad right. and. Um, at that time there was, and I don't know if you remember, but there was a tornado that happened in Joplin, Missouri. Um, and we had an opportunity to go out there to volunteer. We were just going out on Memorial day weekend. Uh, it was me and the kids and my wife. And we went out there and we ended up meeting a family and, uh, hanging with them for a while. And then we, I ended up coming to make a long story short with that situation. I ended up going back there several times to help out do different things um, that that tornado devastated that city and, and wiped out a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of work to be done. So I saw it as an opportunity to, to go there make some money, do some good things for some people. And I consulted with a church out there and did a lot of contracting and, and brought uh, worked with uh, people who were coming in to volunteer to, to get them out to job sites and get materials and that kind of thing. Well, we made a decision in August because my wife was getting ready back to school I had gone back and forth there all summer while my attorney was talking to the FBI and working out all that stuff. Um, I was going back and forth to Joplin working and I was getting real tired of being away from my family. And we, we made the decision to go ahead and move out there. We saw that there was a lot of opportunity out there. There was a lot of business out there. So there was a, a couple that we were, we were working with and they, they, they're like, here, come live in our basement. You know, you can live in our basement and you can do whatever you need to do. So I consulted with that church and we did a couple houses and helped some people out, made some money and, and, and it was okay. Um, but when we made that decision to move out there and I found out later on why, um, the FBI agent that was in charge of our, our deal, um, all of a sudden we're having a garage sale to sell some of our stuff before we go. And all of a sudden I've got 15 armed FBI agents walking up my door and, and pounding on my door. But the thing was, I wasn't there. I was at my bankruptcy attorney's office with my parents and my wife and my kids were doing the garage sale. And so what I had done, the consequences of the things, the actions that I did, my wife and kids got to got to feel the wrath of that and i didn't experience it and so i i'm at my bankruptcy attorney's office and, and it's it's humiliating for them right it's a garage sale it's a community garage sale and there's people everywhere and all of a sudden these truckloads of 
of F- armed FBI agents come, you know, machine guns and uh, bulletproof vests and the whole whole deal. And they're asking for me, and you know, it, it was it was terrible. And I, you know, you listen to my my kids and 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 my wife recount that, and it's 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 just it crushes you when you have to hear that and they went through that. So I get a phone call from my wife and they, and my wife says, they're here to get you. And I was like, who's here to get me? Like, what are you talking about? They're like the FBI is here and they're, they're, they want to arrest you. And I, was, and I remember I looked over and my mom who was sitting there, my mom and mom and dad were sitting right next to me when I took that phone call. And I hung up the phone and I said, I said, mom, dad, I, I'm there's going to, I'm going to get arrested here soon. And I just remember the look on their faces and, and my attorney sitting across from me. And luckily he was there because he was able to counsel them after I had been arrested, but they showed up and put me in cuffs and put me in the back yeah. of the car, read me, read me my rights and took me away. And man, Rob, I will tell you, bud, like you don't ever want to experience that. Mm-hmm. You don't ever want to experience the sinking feeling um, that, your future is about ready to be taken away from you. Yeah. So you go to court, um, you get sentenced to 25 months federal prison? 21. 21 months federal prison. And what exactly were those charges for uh, falsifying? No, it was was one count of mail fraud. Uh, And mail fraud in the federal system is kind of a catch-all. And and the reason that I got charged with mail fraud is because I used a cashier's check. Kind of like the firm. (laughs) Like the movie The Firm, right? I'm telling you, man, like when you start looking at it, that that movie and a couple others are dead on. They really are. So why why 21 months for mail fraud? Like what were they what were they really after? It's a point system. Um, so um in the federal system, there's a point system and and those five loans, uh what what they got me for was mail fraud. Like I said, that fifth loan that I did. Uh, the first four, you know, and I had, I had to admit to them. I, you know, one of the things that we ended up doing was I had an eight hour meeting with the FBI. They call it a proffer. And I brought all my stuff. Cause they thought I was doing like a Ponzi scheme, like, you know, not rehabbing the houses and doing all that stuff that they used to. There's a couple guys that were big time into that and got charged. They thought I had title agents in my hip pocket and all this stuff. It was nothing like that. It was, I, I had, I had, they, we went through everything and we went, we went to our last, the, the first five deals that we ever did. And I had to, I mean, it wasn't like I was hiding anything. I had cashier's checks in my company's name that I brought to the closing table and they had records of all that. So I did exactly what they said I did. Um, and part of the thing that got this whole thing going was I had, I had a business partner um, uh, who was, who was investing with me, who eventually became my business partner. He was an investor. And then went into business with me um come to find out he was embezzling money from the company he was working with and he got fired from that and then that caused a snowball mm-hmm. uh, you know and that's that's how they got to me was like hey you were working with this guy and they look into i mean when they start looking into you they're going to find something they're going to find <laughs> and yeah. and they dug all the way back and found those cashier's checks and that what they that's what they got me for okay so when in, you in, yeah, yeah go, go ahead, ahead. Well, in, in October of 2011, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. October 2012, I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. I thought I was going to go to Terre Haute. I live in Indianapolis. 
and thought I was going to go to Terre Haute, which is about an hour and a half away. Well, I got a letter in the mail saying I had to go to Manchester, Kentucky, which is about four and a half, five hours away from Indianapolis. And that was devastating for my wife and I, because we right. thought we were going to be able to see each other all the time. And that just wasn't the case. So in uh, actually New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2012, I reported to prison. And I will never forget it. I, I wasn't going to put my wife through taking me down. I, I self-reported so that they, they, when they arrested me, they released me on my own recognizance. And I waited for sentencing and I waited for all that stuff. And um, so I asked my parents to take me down to Manchester to, to, to help me to report to prison. And I remember the drive down was pretty quiet, pretty eerie. And, and uh, my mom was doing her best to, to keep me, you know, to keep me smiling. And she, she did a great job. And we pulled into the parking lot and I remember um, my dad and I are very, very close. Uh, I'm very close with my mom too, but my dad and I have this special bond. Um, and it just got stronger through this because he, how much he loved me and, and uh, cares for me. Um, and I remember we're sitting in the car and my mom was sitting in the back. My, I was sitting in front with my dad and my mom was sitting in the back and she got up to come around to give me a hug. And when she got out of the car, um, my dad looked at me and, and I, I've never really seen this look, you know, in his eye before, but he said, he goes, he goes, Eric, he goes, I know you can't get out of this, but he's like, I'm telling you right now, if they'd let me walk in there today and do your time, I'd do it for you. And I just, I just, I, I received a hug from him. Like I'd never, never experienced. And, uh, I think, I think that is, you know, all these people started coming to my life and loving me and, caring for me and wanting the best for me. But I think that hug kind of, it, it helped me walk through those gates um, to go get processed for prison. And cause it was the scariest moment of my life. Oh, yeah, uh, so I didn't, much unknown. I didn't know what to expect. You know, you have, you know, you watch shows like locked up and all that crap and, you know, leading up to it, it seemed like everything I saw on television was related to prison or some something, somebody doing something to go into prison. It just felt like it. And so I had all these preconceived ideas in my mind of what that was going to look like, what I was going to face, what I was going to do. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a real intimidating guy. I'm not the biggest guy in the room. And I'm like, man, I'm, it's going to go down. Like I'm going to have to defend myself and all this stuff. And it, it you know, that that moment with my dad um, helped me walk through those gates and uh, gave my mom a big hug, uh, gave him another hug, and I walked through razor wire and double fences and got processed and put in prison. And it was uh, it was very scary. Mm -hmm. And you got humbled, and that's when your faith really, really grew in in God and the Lord and. Yeah, man, I, I, I have, I, I grew up going to church. Um, yep. I grew up in the Methodist church and, and I thought I had a relationship with God and I thought, I thought I knew who I was in him. And, and, and I, I just, I had all these ideas and, and most of it to me was more of a ritual than a, than a relationship. Right. And, um, you know, we have, we have this, um, I, I well, anyway, I, I went, I went into prison and, 
and I had a bunch of people that, that were praying for me and, 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 and saying all nice things and all that stuff. But I have to admit, Rob, like as I was going through this process and I, and, and over time, I, I found out I was actually going to go to prison because I held out hope for a long time that I was going to get like house arrest or probation or something. I had all these people coming to me saying, Hey, I'm praying for you, praying for you. Well, as time went by, I, my heart got hardened because I was like, look, I understand you're praying for me, but it ain't working. And and that's another one of those irrational thoughts. It's like, I got all these people out here praying for me. Where, where's God and all this stuff? You know, why, why am I going to prison? What, what, you know? And so really going in there, my heart was pretty hardened to, to, to God, to the Lord. And, and, uh, it affected me greatly. Um, you know, I, I relied on people a lot more than I did with my relationship with him. And, and, when you walk in the prison gates, you're by yourself, you know, before, you know, I, I, I had all these people, you know, supporting me and around me and all that was gone. And all those people that were praying for me, I had one, one, um, guy that came up and there was a, there was a couple that came up and I'm like, we're praying for you, Eric, you know, we know your story and all that stuff. And I remember walking away from them. And I'm like, if one more person comes up and tells me that they're going to pray for me, I'm going to choke them out. Cause I just got tired of it. I was sick of it. And I, I didn't want to hear it anymore. Um, and like I said, it was just, my heart was, it was dark. Um, but when I walked in those gates and, and, I, and I faced that by myself with no other people around me to support me, I had to rely on something else other than myself. Uh, because what I was feeling and what I was capable of processing in my mind at that time, wasn't going to hack it. I was going to go crazy. And so I got processed and I got taken over. Um, to the camp and when I when I say prison Rob it's and I didn't know this I had no idea um, I wasn't behind a huge barbed wire fence it wasn't a super max or anything like that it was a prison camp um, and um, this camp that I was at specifically uh, was surrounded by um, this valley we were in a valley uh, we had one little fence up front and everything else you like if you wanted to run you could run but she didn't want to do that. But, um, but I was still in my mind, I was still in prison. I was still away from my family. I still had the label of a felony that I knew I had to deal with. I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life. And I was around a bunch of dudes that I didn't know how they were going to react to me. I didn't know, I didn't know if, you know, I was going to piss somebody off and I was going to end up, <laughs> you know, getting shanked or, you know, something like that. I mean, th those are all the things that you think about. So I, I walk in, I get processed. This, now, granted, this is New Year's Eve on uh, 2000, 2012. And so all these guys who had been in there for a long time, it was, it was New Year's Eve. So they were having a good time, you know, and, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in prison with, with drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And so I walk in there and everything's jumping off. Like there's, there's people, you know, having fun, having a good time. And the guards are kind of letting them go because it's a holiday and, so that was my first experience. And the next day was, 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 uh, New Year's day. And it was, it was the best meal of the year. <laughs> and I walked into that and it was the worst meal I've ever had in my life. And I'm thinking, this is the best it is. And so I'm just like, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm very scared, fearful of what's going to go on. I was very lucky to have a, uh, they call them cellies or, uh, my, my roommate at the time, uh, Donnie, that, 
he had been in for 11 years uh, and prior to that been in for another six. So he had spent 17 years of 35 years in prison. Um, so he knew the way he knew what was going on. And so he spent the first couple of days with me and, and uh, just kind of walked me around, helped me understand the, the importance of getting into a routine. And, and one of the things that I had neglected for such a long time was my physical health. Um, I had, I had gotten down to probably 120 pounds, 125 pounds. I looked, I was, my cheekbones were sunk in. I mean, I look at pictures, you know, right around that time before I went in and man, I, I looked, I looked like I was like on meth. I mean, I was, I was, my eyes were sunken in. I was just, it was terrible. I looked very, very bad. And so I made a, in my mind, I was like, I, I'm going to make a goal that I'm going to get my physical health back in, 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 up to par. And so I put a lot of effort and a lot of uh, time into weights and running. And I played a lot of basketball. I played a lot of softball. And so I spent a lot of time on the weight pile uh, there and that I developed some friendships through that. Um, and I had a, it's funny, all these prison terms and all this stuff, they call it a car, you know? And, and, uh, so it's, it's four guys that, that lift together. And I got, I got, uh, I was very fortunate to be with a couple guys who were very knowledgeable with fitness and all that stuff. And so, you know, the 18 months I was there, by the time I got out of there, that was the best physical shape I've ever been in, in my entire life. Um, but what really transpired during that time was my spiritual and mental health. Um, I, I spent my first couple months in a fog, like having no idea what in the world I was doing, but something happened to me, um, like two weeks into my stay there in order to go to the chow hall, you had to walk past the chapel. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stop in there. Uh, this is a couple of weeks after I'd gotten there. I, I'm going to stop in there and just see what this chapel is all about. And it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, a, it was, it was a chapel, but it was just another room, you know, and they had some stuff in there. There's, there was like 17 different religions in that one small prison. And so they had different stuff all over the walls for all the different religions and everything. And I remember over on the side of the wall, there was one table and it had the cross there and it had a Bible sitting there. So I just went over there and, you know, started looking through stuff and there's this guy that tapped me on the shoulder and said, said, Hey man. And I turned around and it's this, this guy, he's like six foot five, no neck arms, bigger than my thighs. And his name's Chitty. And he's from Lagos, Nigeria. And when you turn around you see a guy that intimidating and it, what's rolling through my head and all that stuff, I'm like, Oh, okay, it's going to go down. Like it's about ready to go down. And I turned around and he stuck out his hand and said, Hey man, I'm shitty. How's it going? And I was just like, damn, like, and I was still waiting for like the left to come across, you know, <laughs> and, and it never happened and it never happened. And from that day forward, um, he was somebody that I, he was a mentor of mine, but something happened with Chitty and I that, that is, it, it, it actually is probably the most freeing moment of my entire life. We, we had a conversation and, one of the things I haven't alluded to, Rob, was those people that were praying for me. One of the one of the people that was praying for me, they were filling my head full of this stuff that just wasn't true. And it was, you know, they were trying to compare my stay in prison to Paul in the Bible's stay in prison. And for for those of you that don't know, like 
Paul was in in the in prison for the sake of the gospel. Religious persecution. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so so we're this whole time that I'm I'm hanging with Chitty and a couple other guys in the chapel and we've met there every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner before then. We'd meet there for 20 minutes and hang out and then go. And I'm sitting there telling them what all these people have been filling my head with. I'm like, I'm here to I'm in prison for a mission. I'm here to save souls. And I was telling them this arrogantly, ego, pride, right? Like what we already talked about. And I'm telling them this. And Chitty's just kind of, I remember he's just kind of looking at me and nodding and smiling. And he's like, and it, we had probably gone through two or three weeks of me just flapping my gums and telling them all this stuff. And I'm not doing anything. I'm working out. I'm not doing anything. I'm not affecting change. I'm not helping anybody. I'm not doing, I'm just mouthing off. And we're sitting in the, in the, in the at the table getting ready to go to chow and everybody had left and i had a conversation with chitty i'm like you know i'm, I'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this he's like like eric he's like do you know the story of paul like do you know really what happened i was like yeah yeah i know the story and he goes and he opened up the bible and he turned it and he pushed it towards me and he said show me in there where paul went to prison for committing a felony and at that time, this whole idea of me going to save into prison to save souls, that was my coping mechanism. Like that's right. that's how I was how I was rationalizing in my head. That's why I was there. In an instant, I mean, he, and I, I must have turned white as a ghost when he said that because because in an instant he ruined my coping mechanism. Because I knew what he was getting at. He's like, he's like, Eric, you're Paul was in prison for the sake of the gospel. You're here because you committed a felony. And I remember for the next couple of weeks, like I was so pissed off at him. I was like, I was like, man, you just completely ruined everything. And and I and I was lost at that time. And everyone and I so I stopped going to the chapel before before Chow, and I I, I skirted around it. So and and there's a, a few times where I'd bump into him and he. Like, hey man, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. Just, just walked away. And we got, and finally, one time I went to 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 the chapel, and he's like, Eric, he goes, there's one more part of that story that I wanted to, that I wanted to tell you. He's like, he goes, what I wanted to help you to see is in that story of Paul, they talk about the joy that he found in prison, not the joy that you you know you fakely put on your on your on your face, you know, the smile you put on your face. But the true heart joy that you get, regardless of your circumstances and regardless of where you're at, and right. that that conversation two weeks prior ruined my time there. But that conversation that he had with me about the idea of joy and regardless of your circumstances and and the lessons that we learned going forward completely yeah. changed changed the trajectory of what I would get out of that eighteen months in prison. Yeah. Because going in there, I was up here. I, I was above them. And in an instant in that conversation, it took me right here to be able to see those guys eye to eye. I had a number on my chest just like everybody else did. I wasn't special. I wasn't there for a different reason. Yeah. I had a number on my chest because I committed a crime. And that's what everybody else was there for. So it's like, what are you going to make out of those circumstances once you're there? And one thing that, that, that Chitty helped me to see was not like working out and all that stuff and, and all these ancillary things. It was my heart. 
because it was so hard and things were things were so dark. And he started working on my heart with me. And he started to change, help me change from the inside out. And like that changed everything. That changed my life. It changed, it changed how I saw people. It changed how I, how I saw when I would go work out, how I saw those guys working out with me. You know, I, I could see things now, you know, you hear that old adage of you have eyes to see, you know, and, and he gave me eyes to see, not Chitty, God gave me eyes to see. And, but Chitty just helped me help reveal that to me through scripture. Yeah. And so what we would do every Friday, man, and, and it was more than every Friday, it was in simple conversation. Every Friday, we'd sit down and we just dive into it. And we dove into it like I've never, I mean, I've read the Bible here and there before, and I know the Bible, I know all the Bible stories, and I know all that stuff just from being around it and 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 being in it. But now it, it served a different purpose for me. It was a goal to have a relationship with my father. And he led me to that. You know, Chitty, Chitty was that guy that led me to that by one simple conversation. And I remember as we were going, you know, and I got in my groove, you know, I got it, I got in a groove and, and things, things started to go. And, and then, then I was able to start working on my marriage because my wife would be able to come like every three, four weeks, somewhere around there. And, you know, my kids would come visit me and it's not like what you'd think, you know, we, we were in this, it looked like an airport, you know, like you're waiting in the, at the gate at the airport. That's kind of what our visiting room looked like. So we were able to, I was able to hug them. They were able to sit on my lap. I was able to hug my wife, kiss my wife. And and so that helped a lot having them come and see me. But, you know, they had a TV room and, and we'd send the kids off. I mean, because my wife, she'd come for a Saturday and Sunday for eight hours a day. You know, so we had a lot of time to talk and we had a lot of time to break things down and to to really have honest and open conversations and I was able yeah. to tell her what the things that I was learning the things that were being taught to me the things that I was seeing and were being revealed to me and a lot of it was just uncovering this garbage that 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 I was feeding myself and and in turn it was trickling down to my relationship with my wife and we quickly found out that a lot of our relationship you know these these last couple of years was rooted in what we had Yep. you know, the, the, the material things. And, and now it, we didn't have anything, yeah. you know, on, on paper, my wife should have been homeless, but because of the community and the people that came around us, we weren't, we weren't. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, my community, you know, our Leavener community that you and I, where you and I go to church now, they took care of my wife while I was gone. And like, when you have that, all those things, you know, happen and you get, you see that. And it wasn't all good, man. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that my, my stay in prison was all rosy. It, it wasn't, I was away from my family. I, I I had to deal with all the guilt and all the shame that still crept in there all the time. Um, but we had an avenue to talk about it, man. And there was like 12, 14 of us that hung out and we, we did life together. And, and that, you know, we had a guy that while I was there, that that uh, his two year old died while while he was in prison, and they wouldn't allow him to go see him. And like, so we had to console him and and help him walk through all that stuff. And like, man, I'm telling you, when you get when you get in front of you know ten to twelve guys, and all your transgressions have been made public, 
you know, and all this, all that crap is out there. Like you can get to the root of things real quick. You can talk about the meaty stuff real quick and all that surface level stuff that we talk about on the golf course and, you know, all that stuff that just really doesn't mean much and it doesn't establish relationships. All that goes away when you're sitting in prison and you, you're, you literally are carrying papers around of what you did. <laughs> and so what we, what we went through and what we worked through was it's not what we did. What we did is not who we are. It's our relationship with Christ that makes us who we are. And it, it's, I just, I can't explain the, the depths of, of, of some of the conversations that we went to. It, it's hard to kind of reenact that, but like, I still talked about five or six of those guys today. And I got a good buddy of mine that lives down in Louisville. I talked to probably once or twice a month. And, and so those are established relationships of, of stuff. You know, you, you've been, it's, it's kind of like sports, right? Like you've been in the trenches, you, you've gone through stuff, you, you've been through a lot of things together and you just, you develop a relationship, a bond. And that's what we did. And yeah. so I, so I'm, no, I'm I working appreciate out. that, man. Yeah. And so, so I, I did my 18 months, um, you know, and, and, and I remember, you know, while I was getting prepared to, to go out, go, go to the doors, what they talk about it, you, you know, they say, um, I remember just being really nervous. I'm like, okay, I got to go back out into the world. I had my little cocoon here. I was working out. I was playing softball. I was playing basketball every day. Like I, like it was my own little cocoon. I always say that I didn't really get, I, I didn't serve the time my wife did because she was having to deal with the day-to-day stuff, the kids, the bills, all the stuff that was going on outside of it. I didn't have to deal with that stuff. I could work on myself. And so I didn't really get the sentence my wife did. And so I just remember just feeling this dread and it it sounds really silly. And a lot of people say I'm crazy for thinking this, but a little piece of me didn't want to leave um, because I knew what I had to face when I came out. Um, My marriage was strong. Um, uh, I knew, you know, I had this whole idea in my mind when we were going through all of our stuff that she was going to divorce me and all that stuff. And it came up about six months into my stay when she was visiting one time, she's like, Eric, I never thought for one time I was ever going to divorce you. I remember her saying like the D word never came into my mind. And I'm thinking, how crazy is that? That that's all I ever thought about. You know, that thought was just constantly being dropped into my head of, of I was going to lose everything, including my kids and my wife. And she never thought about that. She never thought of one time about leaving me. And, and it's, it's just, if we can just learn to talk, be <laughs> transparent in, in the things that we're thinking, a lot of the things that we build up and build up and build up can be squashed immediately in a conversation. They really can. Yep. And, and, it, and, and that's, that's what, you know, the guys that we talk with today and, you know, hopefully the guys that, that, that will see this, if, if there's one thing I can say, man, like, go talk to somebody. It might not be your spouse. You might not have that trust in your spouse. I don't, I don't know. It, it might be your dad. It might be your brother. It might be the guy down the corner. I have no idea who that person is, but get that shit out of you because that stuff needs to get out. And once it's out, you'll understand the weight that comes off your shoulders. And that's what I learned while I was in prison. Um, and my relationship with Christ, my relationship with my wife, my trust in people, grew immensely while I was in there. And so my fear 
in coming out of prison was that I was going to lose all that, you know, that, that it only existed where I was at because I could concentrate on it 24 seven. I was going to have all these other distractions and all this other stuff when I came out of prison. And I did, I did. I had a lot of distractions. I had a lot of people that wanted to talk to me. I had, I still had some financial stuff that I had to work, up, work, work through and all that stuff. And then all the while, I had no idea what I was going to do for a living. I had no idea what I was going to do to support my family. And so we came out. Um, I was blessed to, to get a, a job um, out a town north of here um, doing some operations at a plant. And it was great. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a good job to have at the time because I was flexible in what I could do and I could be with the family and and uh, really, what I was what I was schooled on when I left from the guys that that were there was just go be with your family, just just focus solely on your marriage and being a dad, and let all the other stuff go away because that's the most important thing. And that was the best advice I ever got uh, walking out of there because I probably would have let some of the other stuff distract me and had forgotten about that. But I that seed that was planted when I walked out of there. That, that, that my family was my ministry was, was the most important thing. Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today? Tune in to KukoRadio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station. Play nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at KukoRadio.com. For sure. And so... We just did life, man. We did life for about a year, um, did that job, um, and, and some good things started to happen. Um, really worked on my marriage, really worked on just getting back into my kids' lives. Because my kids at the time when I went into prison were 6 and 10 years old. And so that year and a half of their life was a very pivotal time that I missed. You know, I missed a lot of stuff. And... So I, I just got reconnected with them. Um, it was weird at first. It was strange because they had their routines. They had their habits. But, you know, I, I slowly but surely, and I understood that, you know, I needed to ease my way into those things. And, um, but all they wanted to do was be around dad. All they wanted to do was hang with me. And I just, I ate it up, man. I, I, I love being with my parents. I love being with my family and, and, and eventually started, you know, getting out and talking to my friends and everything. And, there was one conversation. There was one conversation I had with my wife. Um, the natural thing for this group of guys that I worked with, um, the natural thing is to to come out and do prison ministry right away. And it, it, this is how funny God is. When I my first job when I came out of prison was right a right across the street, literally right across the street from a a max facility state prison, right across the street from where I worked. So every day I'd come in and out of, of there and I remember seeing guys out in the yard and I'd, I'd pray for them and I, I knew what they were feeling. I know how things were going, but I never felt the tug to do, to go in there and do prison ministry. And I kept, and I, there was some guilt in that. I was like, why don't I ever feel like I need to do that? And so I, I, I quickly, and I, I brought it to, to Rusty, our pastor's attention. And, and, uh -huh. and I kept, I kept, I kept trying to think, why, why don't I feel that way? Well, what I got was a sense that I needed to get to them before they got there. I needed to get to these guys and talk to these guys before they went to prison. And so that's why I never felt that tug. And that's where 
you had mentioned in the intro, building a refuge, that's where it, it, it spawned, um, was the idea that I, I felt the need and, and was, was released by my wife to go do this, you know, um, as the ability to go out and help and affect change in guys' lives of guys who are going through stuff and just bring hope and community around them. And so that's what we're doing right now, Rob, is, is, uh, with building a refuge myself and Brandon Liam, my, my uh, co-founder, um, and it's 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 been hard and it's been awesome all at the same time. Um, and you, you've experienced some of our meetings. You've been to some of the things that we do. And and um, you know, there's a lot of people that have come around us and a lot of cool partnerships that have evolved from it. And uh, my life's better because of it. Yeah, no, man, I, I appreciate that, man. That was uh, yeah, that was meaningful, man. I mean, what? Um, if you can, man, just put a bow on this conversation. I mean, just uh, sum up, you know, um, building a refuge for us, man, if you can. And um, and I appreciate you coming in and, and taking the time and and sharing your whole story, man. And uh, you know, if we could end with that, that'd be that'd be wonderful, man. Yeah, man, building a refuge. Um, <laughs> it is exactly what it's in the title. It, it's building a place. When I when I was going through my struggles and I was going through things. I was on an island all by myself, and that's where I find a lot of guys that I, I, I that brought into my path is that they are isolating and, and completely shutting themselves off from society, from community, from the people that they love. And the idea behind building a red, what we're doing is not rocket science. We're, we're just trying to reestablish guys into community. So when guys are isolating themselves and putting themselves in the basement like I did, um, to, to escape and to get away, that does nothing but harm. That does nothing but bad um, because we are, are left alone with our thoughts. And so right. when we can provide opportunities for guys to come out and get into community, we don't have a big agenda. We don't have a lot of classes. We don't have a lot of that stuff. We literally just come and hang out. We bring pizza and drinks, and and we, we have a huge partnership with Harley-Davidson here in Indianapolis. They, they open the their doors to us and we just go and hang out we watch college football and 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 we just hang out and and what spawns from that are conversations and the idea that, that of building a refuge is to be a conduit to other mental health professionals to help get these guys hope get these guys um uh treatment and and things that they need in their life and we can only do that when guys trust that we're going to honestly get them to the people that they need and so our goal is when guys come to these meetings and they come and hang out with us is that we develop a relationship with them so that they will trust us to know that we have their best interests at heart. And the idea is all built from Christ and from what I went through in prison and that community and that camaraderie that we, that I built in prison with those guys. And that's, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, mirror that out here because of all the distractions that are that are in the world but we try to do our best to bring hope and stories and we do that through education awareness and then we obviously like you had mentioned the bar podcast where we get stories of guys who have been through some stuff and come out the other side and they see the hope and they encourage yep. guys who are in dark who are in darkness love it and i'll put the links on there as well man for that and uh, yeah i appreciate but i that. just i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story man thanks so much thanks man
for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.